0: As you turn to Acts chapter 8, you're going to be glad that you came this Sunday. <laughs> you're getting your money's worth. <laughs> We're going to tackle not one, but two controversial topics today. Um, you're welcome. We, uh, <laughs> we meet a sorcerer named Simon, of whom Luke writes, believed the gospel, only to see that this sorcerer thinks he can buy the Holy Spirit's power with a simple transaction from the apostles. And then to add to this case, Simon's pleas of repentance don't seem to be anything about except for wanting to avoid the punishment. Silent in his pleas of repentance are any mentions of changing his way of thinking. Also, early church fathers talked about a man with the same name who was an ancient early church heretic. So did this guy ever believe? What did Luke? Why did Luke use that usual word believe when he said he believed? And then another interesting happening in today's text. While Simon believed, so did much of a city in Samaria. But wait, it wasn't until Peter and John came down from Jerusalem to Samaria and laid their hands on them. Then the Holy Spirit came upon their lives. So this, of course, begs the question, is this still happening? Is it possible for anybody to come to saving faith in Christ, but not receive the Holy Spirit at the same time? Like I said, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Um, I invite you to stand and read with me. Stand one more last time if you're able to. We'll be reading Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25 together. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But... For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father, sometimes um, scriptures are so clouded by controversies that we have a tendency to want to ignore or minimize them. Or maybe we can't help but come to them and think nothing of those controversies. But rather, I pray that the original intent of your spirits writing these words through Luke would be made manifest today and that we might grow because of it, that you would use your word to change our hearts, to mold our hearts to be more like Jesus, and that your Holy Spirit would be at work and help us to do what it is you are telling us to do through these words. So I pray that you would move me out of the way and say what it is you desire. Give us open hearts and ears to receive your word. I pray against the enemy that he would have no say or hindrance upon what happens today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. as you can imagine we have a lot to cover so we're just going to dive right in and meet Simon the way that Luke introduces him we see here in Acts 8 verses 9, 10 and 11 but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying this man is the power of God that is called great, and they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So we meet Simon, a magician. This was entertainment back then in Samaria. We still obviously have magicians today, but most people go out of curiosity and desires to be entertained, knowing that they are parlor tricks. Simon was likely into true spiritual demonic magic. I believe it was C.S. Lewis. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. (laughs) See, Satan's desires is to get people to not believe in God or to not believe in his goodness if people desire or end up believing in him. So if he can convince people that he and his demons don't exist, he might get them to doubt that all spirituality doesn't exist. And I would say by and large that that's the state of the Western world. Religion is being relegated to superstitious. Many countries, however, have witch doctors and shamans and evil spirits, and that is relatively normal to them. The supernatural is almost a natural and normal part of life for them. In Samaria, Simon was a man who had magic, and he amazed the people of Samaria with his power. The hurdle was minimal in believing the supernatural, but was awe-inspiring that here is a man who has such great power. And the word basically tells us here in Luke that he attracted every segment, every socioeconomic background. The wording here in verse 10, it says, This man is the power of God that is called great. The wording sounds pagan, but at the same time, it also sounds kind of Hebrew because rabbis sometimes referred to God as the power. So what's interesting is that in this phrase, referring to Simon, it almost perfectly captures and reflects the Samaritan culture at large. Because Samaritan culture had a largely Hebrew-Jewish roots, but as Samaria broke off and disconnected physically and geographically from the southern kingdom, we have at Samaria's founding, if you will, the Jews intermingling and marrying with Assyrians and other people of other uh, gods and cultures, and so we have in Samaria this weird air of some Jewish elements and some pagan and other god elements, uh, kind of a, and kind of like the belief here that here is a man named Simon who is believed almost to be a deity. This man is the power of God that is called great. So he's a local celebrity. He's probably deified. And then the real God shows up. We read in verse 12, but when they, the local Samaritans, believed Philip, our evangelists that we read up on last week, who upon the persecution in Jerusalem, Philip came here to Samaria, and he was believed as he preached, Good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here comes Philip. And we need to recall that coupled with his preaching is what we read up earlier in Acts 8. Verses five through eight, which says Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord. We're not talking about the Honda Accord, but with one accord, (laughs) paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of the many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. One big difference between the spirit of God and evil spirits is that God gives life. God heals, God mends, and God repairs, and God's power brings joy. Evil spirits manipulate, evil spirits diminish life and inspire fear. And sometimes evil spirits, like I alluded to earlier, they just seek to take the glory off of God and put it onto themselves. And in doing so, inspired doubt that God is as powerful as he says he is. But Philip is a true evangelist of Jesus Christ. And so in his name and power, he brings the kingdom of culture of healing and demonic expulsion. And he brings with it the gospel. That sins are forgiven in Jesus name and that the kingdom of God was present with Jesus. Jesus. And so they were baptized, both men and women. Now, I can't even joke here and say that it was a Quaker baptism. (laughs) Because that's just the thing. John and Peter are going to have to come down later and baptize them in the Holy Spirit. So the Samaritans were physically dunked in the water as a public testimony to their belief, testifying that they were being crucified with Christ That they laid down in the water, and then they were raising up with Christ clean and putting on his righteousness accomplished for them at the cross. But also for Samaritans who still held to and believed in the first five books of the Bible, Samaritans did believe in those five books, baptism or they believed that the Messiah had come. And in John chapter four, rest read for this. Read, us, read this to us, there we go. Last week, the woman at the well, what does she say to Jesus? She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. So Samaritans even held out for the Messiah. And so these Samaritans believe that Christ is who Philip says he is and are now placing their hope and their trust in Christ alone for salvation and not their law. Now I want you to see this because this is where we get to our fun controversy today. Let's read verse 13 slowly and in two parts. Let's look at the first part of verse 13. It says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So Paul tells us, in case you are wondering, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Simon believed. What does that mean in the Greek? Believed. (laughs) The same word used up in verse 12, referring to all the other Samaritans who believed and were baptized. Simon was also baptized. Simon knew that from the message preached to him that faith in Christ was about the forgiveness of sins and about citizenship in the kingdom of God. Simon continued with Philip. The continued here is a word that means steadfast devotion. It's used uh, more often than on the New Testament. It's usually connected with devoting oneself to prayer or the church community devoting itself to the study of scriptures. And so I'm not saying that those things, prayer or scripture study, is connected with that one word. but But Simon's devotion was to following Philip and becoming Philip's disciple, as it were. Or was it to be discipled by Philip? The latter half of verse 13 now says, And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, that is Simon, was amazed. Now, here's where the splitting of interpretations of this passage begins. You'll agree with me, maybe, that the language is pretty strong. That Simon believed, like every other believed in the book of Acts. Simon was baptized. Simon was following Philip. But then, because the rest of this story... And because of this phrase here that Luke puts in right here, people start to wonder, well, is Simon truly converted? It seems that all he was after was signs and wonders and how to harness that power. So we'll talk about more of this later. So we're going to leave this can of worms open, and we're going to go open our next can of worms and open that. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them... Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So we back up to verses 12 and 13 and what's, what's happening? Well, the Samaritans are, quote, believing and they're being baptized. Simon is believing and they're being baptized. According to the whole of scriptural testimony, these folks are saved, right? So if the Romans, for whatever reason, came in on Samaria and demolished and murdered every last one of them, for those who believed, scripture assures us, they would have died and went to heaven right then and there. But what we just read tells us this, that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus so here's what some people do. They, they look at that word baptized and they say, well, there's a baptism of Jesus and then a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. And to be baptized uh, uh, to be baptized in Jesus is to be saved. But to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is to have basically Jesus' desires, his will, purity, practice, and perfecting to live in you. So that not only can one just rest in the saving righteousness of Jesus, but also have that act of righteousness living out through you. Do you hear the difference? Well, I grew up in a church, and I just think about every, if not truly every altar call sermon I heard. Every exhortation to be saved I've ever heard in my life assumes that at the point of belief in Jesus, at the point of conversion um, heck, I, I even remember I prayed as a child, what? My mom sat down with me. She asked me to ask for the forgiveness of sins and then to accept Jesus and then to invite him to come and live in my heart. That's the Holy Spirit. Well, I want you to see here that though the Holy Spirit may not have fallen on the Samaritans at conversion, the Holy Spirit still came at the request of Peter and John. I don't want any of us to walk out of here today thinking maybe I'm saved, but I don't have the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it's the Father's pleasure to give his people the kingdom. Jesus says that the Father gives good gifts to his children. Some faith traditions within Christianity, I fear, treat the Holy Spirit as if he's hiding and withholding and hindering, right? The Holy Spirit is cheese, and all the Christians are a bunch of mice looking for it, and then God is moving the cheese on us sometimes. <laughs> People are waiting and seeking and searching and trying and laboring to receive a gift from God. That's what Peter calls the Holy Spirit in our text today, verse 20, that the Holy Spirit is a gift of God. You hear that? The Holy Spirit is not a black belt for Christians. <laughs> he... Is a gift. If we tell Christians that it's wrong to think that we can earn the gift of salvation, then I think the same is true that it's wrong to think that we can earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. If we ground our theology and interpreting in this passage within the rest of the book of Acts, which is a novel idea, what do we discover? When we go back to Acts chapter 1, we remember that the Holy Spirit was going to be for the disciples to accomplish the Great Commission. And the commission was going to Jerusalem and then Samaria, where we're at now, and then to the world. When the Holy Spirit came on Peter and the gathered 120 at Pentecost, Peter then turned and gave a message. And at the end of that message, after Peter told them the truth, namely... That the Messiah came and you murdered him. They were cut to the heart and they asked, what do we do? Well, look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. So far, that's the progression in Acts chapter 8. They believed and were baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how quick that is? To me, that sounds like it's back to back to back. Repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now we have two conflicting messages, it seems, in Acts. We might ask, well, was that just for Peter's particular audience at Pentecost? Well, actually, Peter goes on to say in verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, that includes me, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Paul would go so far to say in Romans chapter 8 verse 9. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, the progression, if the progression is repent, baptize, receive Holy Spirit. Well, then what's happening in Samaria? I think it's directly related to Pentecost. Actually, namely, I think John and Peter the apostles, part of the twelve, who were carrying out the Great Commission. Maybe that's why Philip couldn't, or it could be that he just did not, out of deference and respect, pray for the the Samaritans to have the Holy Spirit. But rather, two of the twelve are present to what some commentators call the Samaritan Pentecost. You think about the three great phases of the Great Commission. Judea, and then there was the Pentecost in Jerusalem, Samaria, and here we have a Pentecost, if you will, for the apostles to witness, and then the world. Peter delivers the message to Cornelius and his household, and Acts chapter 10 records another outpouring of the Holy Spirit and another manifestation of the Holy Spirit, like at Pentecost in Jerusalem and like here in Samaria. Does that make sense? not saying you have to agree. Regardless... We know that Luke is recording the second phase of the Great Commission, right? First, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here. And then at the very end of this episode, I'm going to do my hardest to to get over my OCD and and look at verse 25 now and not cover it later. (laughs) But that is, we see about Peter and John. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And then a quick trivial note, completely unrelated to my sermon. This is the last appearance of John in the book of Acts. So there you go. But the Great Commission has entered phase two, Samaria. And so I believe what's happening here is not a prescription of normal Holy Spirit behavior, right? Luke isn't writing here for us to walk away thinking, oh, the Holy Spirit pours out on some people right away, and for other people, he waits but rather the entire entirety of the biblical council, such as Peter's words at Pentecost, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Or Paul, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Or in other places in Paul's writings, Second Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.13, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the seal of our salvation the authenticity, the idea of a nobleman dipping his royal seal in wax and stamping it on us. And so it seems to me that the entirety of God's word leans into this idea that the spirit is given to the believer when they are converted. What's happening in the book of Acts are Pentecosts, if you will, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, the great commissions at work in Jerusalem, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Samaria, Samaria. The Great Commission's at work in Samaria, and then again, Acts 10 in the world. Does that make sense? Well, let's return back to our first can of worms and see if I can butcher that one too. Simon. Simon had such a great entry in the story. A magician, a black magic man, he believed. Same word as the Samaritans believed. He was baptized. Same word as the Samaritans were baptized. And he was following and devoting himself to Philip, looking up to him as a teacher. But where we last left him, he was a little bit drawn to the signs and wonders. And we see that play out more here in verse 18 through 24. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought, or the word here is you planned, you concocted, you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I want to clarify here in case if you were confused. The if possible here is not... Doubt on the part of Peter. I don't know. Can God forgive you? That's not what he's talking about. But it's more Peter realizing that forgiveness is contingent upon Simon repenting. That's what he's talking about, if possible. He goes on to say, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing what you have said may come upon me. So we're told that Simon saw but the Spirit was given. And we don't know what that means because we weren't told what happened, only that they received it in verse 17 and Simon saw it. Now, it's suggested, if you take into consideration the Pentecost in Jerusalem and then what happens at Cornelius's, that speaking in tongues happens. Maybe that was what Simon saw because that was the manifestation in both of those places. But guess what? We're not told here, so it must not be important. Only that Simon saw that it was given... After the apostles laid on their hands. And so Simon says, hey, that's where it comes from. No. Simon says, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Philip did great signs and wonders and he exercised demons and he healed illnesses, but then he sees Peter and John and he says, you guys are able to give that same spirit that Philip has to others. You're able to give that spirit at will. Show me how to do this. How much? That's what he does. And I should say that that was probably a normal thing in the culture of Samaria. Magicians share tricks with money. And because of the Apostle Peter's words here, leader among equals, Pentecost preacher, the one that Jesus kind of left in charge, some would say, well, it seems by Peter's words, he doesn't even consider Simon to be saved. He curses Simon's silver to perish with him. He says Simon has no part or lot in their matter. His heart's not right before God with the heart one believes and is justified. He says, Simon is in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And we'll look closer at that in a minute. But all of that sounds pretty bad. So then people want to ask, if that's Peter's judgment of Simon, was Simon ever saved? And I think people ask that because we're afraid, and I'll just pick on me, we're afraid of the possibility of somebody like Pastor Kevin ever being judged that soberly by a spiritual authority. We're afraid of the suggestion that I might somehow be endangering my salvation, right? But granted it's so close it seems at least in the book of Acts to Simon's conversion that it seems reasonable to question was Simon always in it to just find power and signs, especially looking at verse 13 after his believing and baptism, he followed Philip being awed by his signs and wonders. And then notice again in verse 24, what does Simon desire? Nothing about repentance, only that what Peter said to him about his consequences wouldn't happen. And then to add more uh, credence to the idea that Simon was never saved, we have the commentators of the first century. So we're talking the earliest commentator, I believe, to be Justin Martyr, about 150 A.D., so that's maybe 90 years or so after the book of Acts is written, saying that Simon went on to to be an early heretic, claiming to be a deity himself, and he just kind of fits in with what we read about him in Acts. Justin and a few other early commentators would say, well, the Simon, early heretic is the Simon in the book of Acts. So was he ever saved? Well, Luke said he believed. Luke said he was baptized, but Peter called him out for his wrong heart. Have you ever met people who sincerely became Christians, but they brought in their old lifestyle not knowing what was right and what was wrong? Simon's offenses were big, but I would encourage you to go home and read First and Second Corinthians. Paul is riding the church in Corinth for some pretty big sins, <laughs> adultery and incest abusing the Lord's Supper? Well, what do I believe? Well, I believe the Bible. Luke said he was saved. I believe Simon had a choice to make after Peter called him out. And if the early church fathers were right about Simon, I think I know what choice Simon made. But instead of making judgments on Simon's heart, maybe we should take some warning from Peter's words. He said to Simon, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness... And in the bond of iniquity. And not the first thing I would have said to Simon because I don't know half those words. But Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 20, tells us, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Now, God is talking to the people of Israel, his chosen people. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, and rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Let's pray and go home. No, just kidding. (laughs) The point is that Peter is warning Simon. Let me put it in Kevin's lame version. Repentance is supposed to go with belief. Repentance is supposed to go with belief. Our faith is about Christ dying for our sins. That's the fountainhead. We have sinned, we have been forgiven, and we're supposed to be saved to sin no more. Right? We think about that statement. I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. See, some people see Jesus, and they see his cross, and they see his crucifixion, and they see his flesh being ripped off his back for our sins as a simple insurance picked up at the supermarket. Get baptized? Okay. Believe. Free gift. Got that. Moving on. What else can I get for my own glory? Right. Faith in Christ is not supposed to be treated lightly as a mere possession that we've obtained or acquired, but it's supposed to do something in our hearts. Simon heard it. He believed it. And you might be saying now, but you're preaching and also Peter sounds like you don't think he was saved. And I'm saying how many of us today believe in Christ to be forgiven, but then we live like Simon church is on Sunday what well, today's Monday and I got a whole schedule of things that don't glorify God but pleasure myself bad tv shows bad food that's not good for my body bad influences Christ is just among my possessions just not my obsession do you hear that Peter says that Simon's in the bond of iniquity his thinking is that if he is a new believer But he still seems to be enslaved to his sins. He liked being called a god among men. He liked to be given glory for his magic. And when he looked at his demonic magic and he found that it was nothing in comparison to God's awesome power, he wanted God's awesome power so that it might up his own reputation. It might raise up his admission prices to his magic shows, if you will. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, And let me remind you, Paul is talking to Christians, saved Christians. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Isn't that the description of a Christian? Not under law but under grace? By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness See, Simon maybe thought he obtained cheap grace. Okay, God died for my sins, so I'm good to go for heaven. And then he takes advantage of grace and he still does what he wants to do. But rather, Paul says we find that if we keep moving in sin, if we keep on feeding that beast of sin. For Simon, it was the power that brought him glory and fame. And if he sought out what brought him more glory and fame, he'd find that he'd still be serving a master of sin, which leads... To death. Do you hear that? The bond of iniquity. Is Simon saved? Was he ever saved? And I'm saying let's move Simon out of the way and make room for Kevin to find that the danger is real. That the warning is, is real. What are my temptations? What are my signs and wonders? And who am I trying to bribe to get what I want? Do you hear that? Am I minimizing Christ's death on the cross to be merely insurance for my soul while still trying to live to pump up my own ego? Am I treating Christ like a useless movie I bought some time ago but now just lives on my shelf behind all the other movies I've purchased since then? Because Christ to me was just another material possession that I purchased to keep my soul safe. And I believe that Peter and the disciples are in danger of dying every day under persecution because Christ is more to them than Simon wants to make him out to be. Amen. What are we saved for? Who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to me? Father, we thank you so much for the blood that you used to save us and for the power that you raised us with. Father, help us to not divorce the scriptures from conviction. Help us to not come to it all the time wondering about the Simons. Instead, help us to wonder about us at times. And to wonder if those words from Peter to Simon are words that we should take to heart because we know they are. Father, help us to not treat you or what you've done for us lightly. Help us to not use grace as a reason to sin. Help us instead to live out in the righteousness and power that you give us through the Holy Spirit. We do thank you for this gift from God. And we do thank you that we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and help us to do so each and every day. Father, we thank you and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.